It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Bleep was a phenomenon. The audience couldn't get enough of it. It took all these people and it turned them into stars. It's as fun as it looks. Welcome back to another episode over here at Everyone's Business But Mine. As you know, um, I did the Housewives early this week and there is no Real Housewives of Salt Lake City as we have the um, little hiatus before the reunion that I'm um, also not going to be recapping more than likely. But uh, because of that, I have a free space, free space Friday, I guess we can call it until things really start shaking up with Vanderpump and Summer House. And oh my God, I can't wait. But anyway, we got to talk about what we're talking about today, which is the three-part docuseries called The Price of Glee. It is on um, ID Channel and Discovery Plus. I assume that it will be on TLC at some point as they're want to do. Um, but as of now, that's where you can find it. I, you know, if you know anything about what happened with the cast of Glee, I think it goes without saying, but I will say, um, trigger warning, major for everything. Okay. Substance abuse, death, suicide, child abuse, any, all the things that people normally issue trigger warnings for just assume that I'll be talking about it at this point. Um, but yeah, let's get into it. This was good. Like if you want to know, usually I start when I talk about these docuseries, should you watch it? Um, yeah, I think maybe like if you have access to it, don't pay for it, please God, don't pay for it. But, um, if you have free access to it, then I would say yes, it's an easy watch. It's not too meaty. They're not too, like, exhaustive with the details. So it's easy to watch. And um, if only, if you just want to be petty, uh, just do, like, maybe, like, the first two episodes. Because the way... They unabashedly go in on Leah Michelle. You guys, I have the fucking chills talking about what they said about her. <laughs> that was the juiciest part. Like, they, no holds barred. No, they did not give a fuck. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, but like, I have so much to talk about before we even get to that point. But wow, uh, you're in for a treat. I was tickled. 
I was tickled. Anyway, okay. So we start off with full drama, right? Drama. A quote from Ryan Murphy in 2016 that says, what started off as being such a great celebration of love and acceptance ultimately became about darkness and death. And then the screen says, in May of 2009, a group of young actors made their TV debut on Glee. By 2020, all of them would be famous and three would be dead and then we get a haunting rendition of don't stop believing which if you've watched the show you know how um integral that song was while the there's like a clock ticking in the background like they 45 seconds in um i've got so many questions um as an avid documentary watcher i would really love us to break free from the chains of having to be so heavy handed and explaining how good things were before everything got so bad. Now I noticed this because 2020 just released a documentary about the uh, Moscow murders and the story. Cause I hadn't honestly really been following it. I mean, I've seen it for sure because it's definitely a big news story, but I didn't really know the details. So I'm like, okay, let me just watch it. And the way they spent like, what felt like 18 hours explaining, no, you guys don't get it. Like things like this don't happen here. Um, we're the largest wheat dealer, Idaho, apparently in, in the country. We, we do tulips. Nobody's really died. Like there have been no homicides in Moscow in, in seven years, which is like, yeah, that's a pretty safe town. I get it. But like, we understand most places people aren't like stabbed to death as a household, you know, like we don't, we get it. We get it. Like what happened was horrific enough. We don't have to be so like, Oh, but you guys don't understand. It really doesn't happen here. Like, no, it's awful. The whole thing is terrible. It doesn't make it worse that like people could leave their doors unlocked, you know, like it's that is awful everywhere. But I will say, I think in this case, because Glee was such a cultural touchstone in terms of the inclusivity of the cast and, and you know, all of that and what it meant to like a certain generation of youth, maybe it's fair in this case. What I did think was unfair is at one point they had one of Chris Colfer's old classmates come on. And honestly, now that I've watched all three parts, I don't think he ever came back. He just was like, yeah, Chris was a fucking loser. <laughs> Nobody liked him. Um, He didn't really have any friends before the show. No, for real. He did not come back on the... I don't think he came back. How much did he get paid? Did they fly him out to have him say that? How much did he get paid? <laughs> for that one line. What was... Was it worth it? I'm a girl. Okay, anyway. So then they start to talk about Mark Salling, who was living on his friend's couch before getting the role of Puck on Glee. He was kind of like L.A. doing music gigs, playing acoustic guitar at a couple clubs here and there, but nothing really happening. He was 26 at the time, and he was kind of sweating. Like, is this going to work out for me, the acting thing? And so... In order to increase his chances of being on Glee, he actually told the producers that he was 19, not 26, which is real ironic, a real ironic turn of events for him, but more on that later. So then they move on to Corey and 
you know, he was by all accounts, they interview one of his former acting classmates a lot and he was greasy. But anyway, um, he was, you know, by all accounts, just a natural at acting, wowed his teachers in the acting classes that he went to without having any sort of experience. And this former classmate says that in the beginning, Corey was really nervous about his history of substance abuse, like in the beginning of the show and becoming more popular and more visible. He didn't really want to talk about his past and it didn't want it to get out in the public, which is interesting because to me, I was always under the impression that he was pretty transparent about it, but we find out that he came out at the end of season two about his um, past. And uh, <clears throat> that's when I started watching the show. So timeline, nobody cares. Anyway, then they get to Leah and we see her audition tape. So apparently she had just gotten into a car accident right before the audition was shaking glass out of her hair, even though they told her, girl, just go home, maybe sit down eat a piece of bread or something. She insisted on continuing the audition. Leah's a Broadway baby, grew up there, you know, was the most pedigreed cast member of the younger, you know, the actual students. Um, and so we see clips of this audition. At one point, she's yelling at the piano player, like, because he messed up, like, no, let's start at the second verse instead. Um, she's chastising the producers because during the acting portion, She's supposed to be dramatic. Like, this is supposed to be a moment where everybody's like, oh, my God, look at those acting chops, right? But they laugh at her, and she's like, no, that was supposed to be serious. And they start laughing at her, but she's, like, dead ass. <laughs> so, apparently, Ryan Murphy kind of created the character of Rachel Berry on Leah in that moment. And they straight up say that Leah wanted things at the expense of everything else. But more on that later, as I said. So then we meet Justin, who was Corey's first roommate. Corey calls him out of the blue one day and is like, hey, from a Canadian number, um, I am doing this show. It's about, you know, a high school glee club and I need a place to crash. And the guy's like, huh. <laughs> I didn't think he was going to make his rent, but like, he seemed nice enough. Like, this guy is, <laughs> he keeps talking about Corey a lot in the first half about like he basically thought he was a loser and he purports himself to be like somebody that we're supposed to know i've never seen this man's face in my whole life and you know what i know that i would remember because it appears that maybe he's gotten some sort of eye lift at quite a young age and listen i don't mean to face shame but it just seems like it hurts him to talk it actually looks like it hurts him. But anyway, um, he basically is like, yeah, we didn't think he'd be able to afford rent, but like, uh, we let him move in anyway. And he says the second day that Corey moved in, Corey was really transparent with him, just kind of flippantly mentioned his past drug use and the fact that he was currently sober. So then we get a little bit of Corey's history, which is that he was abusing drugs at the age of 13. They make mention to say that his parents divorced when he was seven. I'm not sure if that's connected. I don't know. But he was in and out of schools, including ones for troubled teens. He would steal money from his family. Like, it was deep. So at the age of 19, his mom and friends staged an intervention, and he enters rehab in 2001. And it was in that rehab that somebody suggested to Corey, maybe you should get into acting as a way to, like, kind of find a way to focus your attention into something. And... 
there we go. History is made. So they filmed the pilot and the cast is talking, like telling their friends what the show is, what the concept is. And by all accounts, everybody's like, yeah, that sounds uh, like it's going to get canceled. (laughs) Sounds like a really bad show. But the pilot comes out. Things go off like gangbusters. At one point, somebody's like, that damn Don't Stop Believing song was everywhere because of them. Like, he's still tight about that today in 2022. (laughs) Social media was also really popping off at the same time. So the show found a lot of great success because of Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook. But it also created these parasocial relationships with the cast where the fans would feel entitled to just be like popping up any and everywhere that these kids were. At one point, some guy went up and Chris kissed, kissed Chris Colfer, say that five times fast, and like on the mouth, out of nowhere, like Chris is going into uh, some sound stage somewhere and some guy just like assaults him. Like crazy, crazy stuff. And then we get to Leah and Corey's relationship. Actually started before the pilot premiered, then they were kind of on and off for a little bit during season one before being fully back on, you know, until he passed away. There are multiple people who were just straight up like, we don't get it. It was very surprising that they would be together. And there's one guy who worked on the crew. So in terms of like access, um, no actual like main cast members came to interview. We had a couple of stand-ins, um, Naya Rivera's stand-in, I think Chris Colfer's stand-in or something, um, but a lot of crew. So I think like in terms of legitimacy, fairly legit, but there was one guy who was particularly thirsty, but he also gave us a lot. But there's another dude who says that he had a bunch of mutual friends with Leah back in New York. So he knew about her and her reputation prior to like him joining the crew and he knew that she was known for being a little bit difficult the cast would have competitions over who had the biggest social media followers leah especially was really competitive about that because she had the most and like they would be in the makeup room bragging about their twitter accounts or whatever and they also talk about how overworked and stressed out these kids were because like i said fans were everywhere At one point, they had to, on the lot, build a tunnel between the trailers and the soundstage so that the kids could just peacefully go from their trailers to work without people hounding them. And they would also have to go on these tours during the summer. So you're working all these long hours. They were saying the kids would do six hours dance class. Then you would go into vocal training. Then you would go into voiceover training. Then you would be in the studio recording for not only the show, but the album that's about to come out. And then when you're done rapping, that's not even including the acting, right? (laughs) Right? And so then um, when they're done filming the show, they're having to do these stupid tours, doing 21 dates, I think they said for season two, 21 dates in what? A span of two and a half months? Like, that is grueling. I I couldn't imagine. I could not imagine. Um, they barely really mention the adult cast members. They don't mention Matthew Morrison, which I think is quite interesting because he has quite the reputation online of being um, 
I feel like people get the same vibe. Like, if you don't like Justin Timberlake, I'm going to be like an Amazon suggestion. Like, if you bought this, maybe you're interested in that. If you don't like Justin Timberlake, you're really not going to like Matthew Morrison is the impression that I get. People find him to be very slimy. I think there may have been an allegation against him. I don't want to put that out there if that's not true, but I'm like 95% sure that there was at one point. Um... Yeah, I think he just has, like, a, like, people just really don't like him. I think part of that is, like, joke, but I think it's steeped in a lot of truth. <laughs> but anyway, they don't really talk about him except for when they talk about money. And, you know, I love to, like, get into the financials of it all. So what I didn't know is that Jane Lynch and Matthew Morrison were making significantly more than the top-earning uh, students, you know, actors, uh which were Leah and Chris Colfer, um, they were making about 45000 per episode in season one. Eventually, Leah was able to negotiate her salary up closer to where Jane and Matthew were, which is around $80,000 an episode. So like I said, because the show is enormously popular, Corey has to end up moving out of his uh, house that he was sharing with this guy, right? But eventually, Corey calls him and is like, yo, I got this house in the hills. It's a lot more secure. Do you want to move in with me? So he moves in. He says, this guy, Justin, says that Corey hated being famous. He just wanted to take a break. He was overworked, exhausted, said at one point that he wouldn't wish fame on his worst enemy. We have a lot of uh, interviews from the psychotherapist who did not work on the Glee with anybody she's just putting her opinion on it right she says she talks about the concept of you know golden handcuffs right how you basically feel obligated to something because of the fame and the money and all the benefits and the accolades even at the expense of your mental health so then Corey eventually like i said at the end of season two starts publicly speaking about his substance abuse and his legal issues and after this Corey starts going to Canada for like long stretches of time. He starts going MIA. He's not showing up on set. When he does show up, he's unprepared. But um, there are times where his stand-in is having to do all of his like prep work. And then he would just show up late. Um, And, you know, Corey ends up passing away, as we know, at the age of 31. Downtown Vancouver in this really nice hotel of what we eventually find out is an overdose. Um, But more on that later. So if you're wondering if they try to paint Ryan Murphy as some sort of overly ambitious man who expects a lot of the cast and crew, you would be correct. Some of the crew tell these horrific stories. Horrific. About how Ryan wanted to build an auditorium. And also um, Ryan in the episode where they do the uh rihanna's umbrella mix with seeing in the rain that epic episode as we all know and i'm not being sarcastic (laughs) it was a big episode um that ryan wanted actual rain and water and not just special effects so he made them do it in in water and how the cast was wet i mean that's really all they could come up with it didn't really sound like he sounded demanding And, like, he was uh, running a very popular show and expected a lot of his cast and crew. But, like, we're not having, like, I don't know. 
you you had to build an auditorium like that doesn't seem like the worst possible thing that could happen on a set you know so then we get back to Corey and the lead up to his passing and how he was essentially written out or missing from a good chunk of season four because towards the end he entered into a 30-day rehab so one of his friends and a crew member talk about how stressed out Corey would be this friend was uh oh god what was his name I can't remember uh, but he was on a show called Big Time Rush, which I think was a Disney show. I don't know. I thought that was a country band for several years until I found that there was a show behind it. I I don't know. I think the same about Shay and Dan and Shay. I thought those people were like YouTubers for like a long time. And I'm like, how are they winning country music awards? <laughs> Turns out they were never YouTubers to begin with. I just made that up. Anyway, nobody feel the need to explain to me what Big Time Rush is. I think I know enough. I, I think I got it. Um, you know, I, I've known so little leading up to it. Why start now, you know? Anyway, so this friends start talking about how Corey had a lot of insecurities. Actually, quite a bit of people talked about Corey's insecurities around his dancing in particular. And about how he didn't have a history in dance like uh that britney chick what's her name heather morris or harry shum or he wasn't a singer before the show like leah or chris or the rest of the kids and so that really stressed him out he was very insecure about his dancing and then you know it's like comparing him to people who are like at the top of the heap for your age range is like even more stressful so he leaves rehab in April and then season five is supposed to film in July. So he has a few months of freedom. And in that point in July, Corey goes back to uh, Canada. He spends a week at this Fairmont hotel. They have some guy that they interview who's, I don't know if he's, he seemed very self-appointed. Like he had taken it upon himself to make a habit of backtracking the week before celebrities die to try and figure out what could have happened. I don't know. But anyway, he says he did his research, went to Canada and did this. And he was able to determine that 48 hours, a couple days before Corey died, he was hanging out with some people. There were some pictures of somebody who happens to be holding a couple of PBRs, but it's not him. But apparently that day he had a couple of beers, right? So relapse, right? But then the day or the 24 hours leading up to his death, he was spotted out again, like really out and about at a few places, but by all accounts did not seem to be drinking. Um, when they found him, he had a couple of empty champagne bottles and um, I believe there was heroin <clears throat> That's, you know, two depressants, not a great situation. And, um, yeah, so really, like, I don't really know what that guy went through all the effort of discovering that for. It really wasn't anything for me. Then we meet this man who he had been interviewed a couple times before this, but really he starts talking now. He is part of the, he was part of the uh, hair department at one point. Um, but not the entire run of the show. I think he left after season three, but he says that the boys would still come and get their haircuts from him after he left. So he maintained a relationship with Corey. He says 
that he never saw Corey drunk or under the influence of any drugs until the last couple times he saw him, where he could tell that Corey was drunk. He says that Corey told him that there was an occasion in which he had been at an event with some other cast member and he was struggling with his sobriety really was tempted to drink but didn't want to do that and this cast member he alleges that told Corey, don't worry about it you shouldn't worry about having a drink if you want to have a drink you should have one and you can always trust me i'm always going to be here for you and this man alleges that Corey was really actually bothered by that but he also took it as a sign and he started drinking again he took that as a permission right from somebody that he loves. I think it was interesting that the guy made mention of that, right? Because who was, who was Corey dating? Right? So then this guy says, I don't want to say who the person was because I wasn't there to hear them say it directly. However, Corey and I had conversations about this for days and that Corey really resented that person for making, for saying what they did to him. But again, he also started drinking then they start talking about Corey's death and how really Corey's passing turned into Leah's story. And they show a clip from the Teen Choice Awards after Corey's passing where they won some award. And she accepts it. And in her speech, she starts crying and thanking everybody for their support. And then the screen pops up a picture of Leah. And the words just over her face it was all about her always Woo. <laughs> we actually see the source of this quote which is a former set director who said that Corey and Leah's relationship re- seemed really odd to her because it was always about Leah and it just seemed like Corey just accepted that and the hair guy comes back and says that he feels like Leah was not a friend of Corey and that to her Corey was just the guy on a TV show she was ambitious. And then somebody tells a story about how in season one, where they're doing this four-year consideration uh, lead up to the Golden Globes, they have the Foreign Press Association come to the set, you know, take a tour. And as part of the tour, both Amber Riley, icon, legend, sings down, and Leah sing a song they each sing a song, right? Leah's song was good. You know, like the girl's talented, make no mistake. But Amber, and the types of songs that Amber sings and how well she can sing them, just indifferent. Like if you love Broadway, Leah's, she's a doll, I think. I'm not a Broadway girl. I don't care. That's one thing about me. I don't give a fuck about Broadway. I don't care. I've never been to a Broadway show. I can't imagine. There have been maybe a couple shows that I'm like, mm, I would do that. But no. I also have a thing about Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's it's deep-seated. We don't get it. We don't have to get into it. But anyway, from what I am what I gather, I respect it. I, it's just not for me. Okay. From what I gather, Leah's uh, top tier. Or she would be, if not for the rest of it, right? But Amber, I know that girl. Down. Okay? Anyway. So, they get into the inevitability of uh, Leah being quite pissed off about, uh, you know, somebody else having a moment. So, the producer asks, well, 
what was wrong? What would be so wrong with letting one person have a single moment? <laughs> and the guy goes, well, yeah, you're thinking rationally, but Leah's a narcissist. And then he just starts laughing like a real chuckle. <laughs> and then we get to the night the lights went out in Georgia. Okay. AKA when uh, several former cast members took to Twitter to tell their horror stories about Leah being a racist monster. Um, should we go back to that Wayne's world style? Doo-loo, doo-loo, doo-loo. Yeah, I think we shall. So let's go back to June 1st of 2020. Uh, a couple days prior, uh, Leah had taken to Twitter to tweet her support of uh, hashtag Black Lives Matter and George Floyd. Okay. And so she tweeted, George Floyd did not deserve this. This was not an isolated incident and it must end. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. And so two days later, an actress who had been on the show named Samantha Ware quote tweeted Michelle and said, uh, remember when you made my first television gig, a living hell? Because I'll never forget. I believe you told everyone that if you had the opportunity, you would shit in my wig. Amongst uh, a lot of other uh, tr- micro, tra- excuse me, amongst other traumatic microaggressions that made me question a career in Hollywood. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As we all know, when it comes to everyone's business, I like to mention it all, but when it comes to mine, I like to keep things a little bit closer to the chest. But that method doesn't always work when it comes to your mental health, and we all need a way to purge and get it out. Therapy is a safe space to do that and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down by learning positive coping skills and all the tools you need to help you be the best version of yourself. BetterHelp is entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. So you can just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash everyone's business today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash everyone's business. So Samantha was on season six. She was on 11 episodes of the show. So, I mean, it stands to reason that they had quite the relationship. And then the responses from other cast members just start flooding in. Alex Newell tweets a simple gif 
but we all know. Simply, get her, Jade. And then Amber Riley comes in with uh, her own gif. And by that, I mean a gif of herself (laughs) drinking some tea and looking around like, well, you said it. (laughs) And then we have another person um, named, uh, I believe it's Dabier, Dabier, D-A-B-I-E-R. And he, in all caps, says, girl, you wouldn't let me sit at the table with the other cast members because I, quote, didn't belong there. Fuck you, Leah. So Dabier actually was, um, sorry, there was a cast member who came on the show and that was Dabier who does interview and say, um, (laughs) he expounds on the story. So he says that he was in a scene with Gwyneth Paltrow. It was an incredible scene. Gwyneth was writhing, um, her very taut body on the desk right in front of him. So it was a big day for him. A lot of, um, emotional reactions down the can. If you guys aren't, if you're not in the know, that means right in the lens, I think. (laughs) And, um, yeah, so it was a big day for him. So they cut to break. They're going to have lunch or whatever. And he says, Darren Chris says, hey, come to our table and eat lunch with us, right? Inclusive King. So he sits down at the table, thinks everything's fine. About 10 minutes go by and the PA or something comes up and is like, hey, um, can I talk to you for a second? And so they get up and he's like, um... I'm really sorry, but somebody just doesn't want you sitting at the table. Like, it's not about you. They just feel like you don't belong with the rest of the group. So he's like, uh, who said that? And the girl just kind of cringes like, I don't really want to get into it. So he's like, I just guessed, was it Leah? And then she cringes again and kind of nods like, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) I will say that this man doesn't make it or he doesn't say anything about him feeling like his race had anything to do with it. He just felt like it was more of a hierarchy situation um, with regard to like him just not being a main cast member. Right. And then the funniest thing of all happens, which is that they throw up another picture of Leah driving a golf cart and it's like a blurry picture. And then this bass starts playing like don't 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 like she's like some kind of fucking serial killer like granted i do think she's racist <laughs> but it was giving jeffrey dahmer at some point so i'm like okay let's 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 just let it be what it is right actually i changed my mind i do think more racists should be portrayed like serial killers in the media i said it so this leads us to the rivalry between Leah and Naya. And the hair guy says that when they would fight, it would be constant. They hated each other. Everybody knew it. It was common knowledge. But at the same time, Leah and Naya also respected each other's talents. Things were basically okay as long as they were boiling under the surface and not like getting out to the public. But once Naya started speaking up about it, how she didn't like, you know, Leah, it became a her or me situation and Leah won. And so Naya had to take a break from the show for a little bit. Ryan Murphy had a clear favoritism for Leah and it kind of went into overdrive after Corey passed away. And people claim that Ryan 
basically put Leah in the driver's seat in terms of the direction of the show, whether it would even continue, because he had always had in mind that uh, Corey and Leah's characters, Rachel and Finn, would be endgame. But obviously that couldn't happen anymore. So the serial killer music comes back. When they start talking about Leah's decision to go back filming two weeks after Corey passed away. So it only pushed back production a week. And she was given three options. She was given the option to, hey, we can go back. We can take a hiatus. And because he passed in July, we can um, go back into production in January. Or we can just end it right now. And Leah says she does an interview with uh, Ellen, actually, in which she talks about her decision to, like, I just want to be with my family. Like, we're like a family and I just want to be with them. And, yes, it'll be hard and triggering because we'll be on the set. But, you know, we'll just be together. And I I just wanted that. That's I just really wanted to go back to work. I needed to go back to work. So to the public, it's being presented as, like, Leah is bravely making the decision as heartbroken as she is to get back into things. And it's going to be a great thing for everybody else because they're like the fucking Fast and the Furious family. And, you know, they're all there in support of her. Right. But on the other side, this is a whole cast and crew of people who had their own relationships with Corey and were very upset and openly grieving and now they're having to go back to work and it's not just like oh I lost my friend it's oh we're spending 17 hour days together on set and now this very big part is missing so I'm grieving the fact that he's gone I'm grieving the fact that all these memories that I have and I'm supposed to have with him I'm not having anymore and you know I'm grieving personally I'm grieving at work I don't want to be here. And on top of that, the third episode that they're filming, they're doing three episodes at once. They're in production on three episodes at once. One of them is the goodbye episode to Corey, the quarterback episode where they, you know, talk about his character Finn dying. So now you're having to grieve all over again and act grievous over this character who was your actual friend and coworker. Like, Everybody was really fucking pissed off at Leah, and it seems like a lot of people, the cast and crew included, thought that the show should just end. They were actually really surprised that Leah wanted to go back at all. When they're doing the episode about Corey's passing, or Finn's passing, um, the crew and the cast members are so upset having to film this that they have to stop production several times, and... On the other hand, it's like the whole experience of being on the show is ruined because you can't even be happy on set because of what just happened, you know, this big loss. So at the end of part two, we meet a guy whose brother worked on the crew and it kind of seems like after Corey passed away, there were a lot of people that passed away. Not just Mark and Naya. There was a lot of people of the crew that passed away in, in great succession early for their age uh, in very tragic things like uh, suicide. Like the, there was two brothers that worked on the crew together and he basically says that he feels like the ruling schedule really was 
part of why his brother completed suicide at the beginning of season six. Um, there were at least five other members of the crew who ended up passing again by suicide or heart attacks at the age of 41 or Matthew Morrison's stand in was like caught in some sort of car fire, like very tragic and, and unfortunate circumstances. So then we get to part three where we hear about the, I would say separate tragedies of Naya and Mark. Like to be clear, I think what happened to Naya was tragic and what Mark did was tragic. So we start with Naya and we hear from her father, George, and the producers ask him the very stereotypical question of like, you know, when Naya was growing up, did you see her singing at the age of two or three and think, Oh my God, like this is going to be a big thing. And he answers it very honestly. He's like, I don't know. Not really. <laughs> it's like, we were honestly, weren't really thinking about that. Like it was just fun. We were making money. Like, yeah, she was acting from the time she was a kid. She was a SAG actor by the age of one, but the Rivera's were a working class family um Naya definitely had the talent her dad was a DJ but it never really went anywhere um Maya had Naya excuse me had a obvious uh musical ability she sang really well and she was really the one who wanted the talent was writing in her diary I want to be a star one day those were really her dreams they were just kind of rocking with it Naya was working okay she was pumping at an 11, 10, 8 years old, working on the set of every black sitcom in the 90s that you could ever possibly think of. She was there at some point, guaranteed. I mean, just thinking about like, oh yeah, Naya was on that show. And she was on that show. And she was on The Cosby Show. And she was on In the House. And she was on Family Matters. Like, she really was everywhere. Um, But, you know, even though she was consistently working, by the time she gets older, she's thinking girl, I'm talented. It's proven. You see the recipe, you see the receipts. Why am I not getting the roles that I feel like I deserve? So she's frustrated. She gets a uh, audition for Glee. She tells her dad, yeah, I mean, I, they're wanting me to audition for a cheerleader role. Um, just a couple lines, no big deal. And he tells her, or he says that he tells her, they're going to see how talented you are and don't worry about a girl. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. Obviously, if you've watched the show, she and Heather Morris's characters were the cheerleaders. They were supposed to just be like the, you know, pretty little background singers, the doo-wop pop pops, as I call it, <laughs> to Diana Agron's character. If you guys don't know what doo-wop pop pop is, it was from Braxton Family Values. So if y'all don't know, Tony Braxton, obviously, if you don't know her, I don't know what to tell you. Girl, read a book. Go on Google, please. Um, but when she would tour, her sisters, Tamar, Trina, you know, Tawanda, would all do background for her. They did background vocals on her albums and it would also go on tour with her. So <laughs> when the show started, Tamar is like very frustrated because she doesn't want to keep being background singer to Tony. She wants her own career and I don't want to just be doing doo pop pop. So that's what I'm saying. Like they just were there to be like the nice support to Diana Agron, but obviously their characters ended up exploding. They realized that Naya also sings very well. And they're like, Oh, I think we should maybe do something with that. So this really gets into how Ryan took a lot of these cast members, these actors, real lives and their personalities and things that would happen to them and 
inject them into their characters, um, which kind of leads us to Mark Salling, a.k.a. Puck. Um, there's a chilling clip that they played. I'm glad because I always think about it when I think of him, which is he's just doing like, you know, your whatever access Hollywood or whatever interview. And he's talking about his character. He's like, yeah, everybody thinks that uh, my character is a bad guy. And then he looks right at the camera and he goes, but I'm actually the worst guy. It's like, yeah, I, I think you might be. So on the show, Puck was constantly in relationships that were inappropriate from, you know, getting Quinn, Diana Agron's character pregnant in season one and having a relationship with Dina Menzel's character who plays a teacher on the show. And the producers are talking about how they would form these characters based on getting to know the actors in real life. So there's an actual storyline in Glee in which Puck dates an underage girl and they show a clip of the uh, scene and he asks her if she's underage and she says, I have a fake ID. And he says, well, that's good enough for me. And then there's another scene with Gwyneth Paltrow where he's talking about how he and another classmate are going to be making a sex tape and distributing it. And his character is 17 years old. And so Gwyneth Paltrow says, um, you know, you realize because you're only 17, that would be, you know, child pornography, right? Yikes, you guys. There's really only one crew member who calls Mark approachable or nice. Other people say that he kind of kept to himself. He was like something weird about him, but it wasn't their business. And also he was in a relationship with Naya in the early seasons which was really dramatic. And he cheated on her a lot, which resulted in George, her father, having to admit that, yes, Naya and a friend did egg his car one time when he was out of town. I mean, the headline popped up and said that Naya keyed the car, but that's neither here nor there. It seems like he deserved it. They didn't mention this in the documentary, but I will forever stand this woman for setting a wedding date and just marrying whoever happened, okay? Because she was engaged to uh, Big Sean, remember? <laughs> and they set that wedding date. They broke up, and then she ended up marrying that Ryan Dorsey guy on the same day. We have to stand. That's iconic. <laughs> and I'm going to say this, and I'm telling you, like, no sarcasm, whatever. There's just no other way for me to say this, and I mean this with the utmost respect, because I do respect Naya Rivera. But that's good pussy, okay? I mean, there's just no other way to say it. Like, how do you get a man to marry you on the same wedding day that she sat with a whole other man? That's good pussy. Like, there's just no other way to say that. And quiet as it's kept, one of Big Sean's best songs, top five, maybe even top three, is a song about how pressed he is over her, okay? It's not a nice song, but it's probably his most popular one. So, again, GP. Anyway, let's move on. So the show ends in season six, but by all accounts, people stopped really like largely enjoying the show. Excuse me, by season four. A fraction of people watched the series finale as they did the series premiere, like 2.8 compared to 8 million people who watched the premiere. So after that, things really didn't great turn out great for a lot of the cast members. Like, to come off of such a huge juggernaut of a show and really 
I mean, honestly, like, there's no, like, mega stars. Like, Leah, maybe, but she's struggling. Her reputation precedes her. You know, she's more infamous in in a lot of circles than she is actually famous. But season, sh- the show, rather, ends in season six. And things are not going well for Mark. Like, he tries to drop an album. It doesn't really go anywhere. He has a girlfriend. And this is around 2015. His girlfriend at the time ends up finding images of child sex abuse on his computer. She turns him into the authorities. The authorities then find a whole trove of these images and videos, over 25,000. I actually looked in an article that said 50,000 um, per the affidavit or whatever. So I'm just like, ugh, it really turns my stomach. I like have a hard time talking about this stuff. But that was December of 2015. May of 2016, he was charged in a federal indictment and he pled guilty, but he did a plea agreement in which the prosecutors agreed to ask for the judge, ask the judge rather for a sentence of like four to seven years. So January 30th, he's supposed to be sentenced in March and January 30th, they find his body. He completed suicide by hanging um, in a park near L.A. Really not much to say about that. I mean, they basically are like, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know how to say this, but they were basically just like, yeah, it was kind of an inevitable. Like, you don't come back from a reputation like that. Nobody wants to be your friend. Certainly nobody's going to work with you. Uh, do you want to go to prison? Four to seven years, like, in the grand scheme of things, probably isn't too much, but... At the end of that, like, you come back to less than nothing, you know? (laughs) Like, most prisoners come out with nothing. He would probably come out with way less than that. Um, Having to register as a sex offender, so it's kind of just like, yeah, well, move on. Then we get back to Maya, and how she and many of the cast members didn't really have that many opportunities in the industry after the show. Um... A lot of people were frustrated. They also talked about Corey and his frustration during the show about how they worked so much that he really wanted to get into movies, but he wasn't able to because he just, they, he didn't have the time to do it. Um, and how annoyed he was about that. Um, Naya ends up getting married, as I spoke about, GP. And in 2017, she has a kid. In 2017, there is a domestic violence issue. Her uh, husband at the time alleges that they fighting over the baby and she struck him in the head uh the case ends up getting dismissed and they end up having a fairly good co-parenting relationship it seems like Maya ends up getting why do i keep calling her maya naya i'm so sorry ends up getting um sole custody of their child in 2020 um and then we have that just unfortunate summer where you know she and her son go out to Lake Piru and then they actually have her dad drive out there for this docu-series. He says he has not been there since, you know, she drowned. And, um, that was powerful. That was powerful. Him talking about how he found out and he had actually spoken to her that day on the pontoon boat. So he says he's got, a history with boats it's like you know he's 
as a self-described boat person. And so Naya had FaceTimed him and she was just out on a pontoon boat. He was like, I don't really know why you're on that. It's basically just a platform with edges that you can jump off of, like not really a boat. So he was talking to her about anchoring and strategies for that. And he told her, he says that he told her, do not jump off of that. Don't do it. This is a bad idea. He says that they had a couple of iterations of this conversation where he's telling her not to do it. And then her FaceTime cuts out and that's the last time he spoke to her. So the day that Naya and her son went out, they went out on that pontoon about around uh, one o'clock in the afternoon and about four or five um, people find the boat floating with her son asleep. She's nowhere to be found. So George says that he got a call around midnight that night and then he drove from where he lived in Knoxville. It was a Wednesday. He got there to uh, LA on Saturday. Um, they ask George, God, this is so sad, how he processes Naya's death. And he's like, well, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but I haven't. Like, it's just as fresh as it was two years ago. And I've just had to compartmentalize it. I had to put it in a box and it's there and I don't open it. And that's how I'm able to talk to you guys right now. Like it's just somewhere else. I can't do it. You know? Um, and then George says he had taught his kids. All of his kids were strong swimmers and he taught them about riptides. He himself does not have any answer as to what happened. He says, nobody's ever told him that they solved the mystery of what happened to her. But then they have a reporter go to the lake with a coroner who says he knows a lot about, you know, water-related deaths, drownings, that sort of thing. And he looked at the reports and he says that he has his own theories. So he says, you know, she did have like a few things in her system. You know, she had been drinking some White Claws, I think, maybe some amphetamines from like a diet pill that she had been taking. But everything was at a therapeutic level. Like even if there were multiple substances found in her body, none of them were enough, even in combination with each other to have contributed to her death in any way. They floated around this theory of carbon monoxide poisoning, which I don't know why they did because ultimately they came to the conclusion that it wasn't even possible. So why even discuss it? But, um, because like the engine wasn't on there was you know it wasn't like it was out of gas and the key was in the ignition when they found her son or anything like not possible um but what he did determine was it was more than likely like the conditions in this lake are very unique in that um it's very windy but it's also surrounded by mountains so it was like they were out on that they took a pontoon boat out on the lake and he was like, just see like in the time that we've been talking, look at how far we've gotten. Um, and it's not even nearly as windy as the conditions on the day that Naya disappeared. So he says that because of the mountains, it creates these like weird wind situations where the waves are kind of like crisscrossing with each other and they're sort of confused. So it creates really bad, you know, conditions. It makes it, you know, you have to try a lot harder. So, one, it's windy, so they're probably jumped off the boat and were swimming, but then the boat got too far away from them. So Naya is helping herself and her son get back into the boat, 
it's exhausting. She's panicking, probably worried about if they're not going to make it. And she, you know, it also takes a lot of strength to hoist yourself up onto a boat. <clears throat> the conditions were bad. She probably only had enough strength to help her son and not herself, basically. Um, so also we found out that uh, Naya had vertigo. And obviously they can't determine if she had it at the time, but she had a propensity for getting it really badly. And that definitely could have contributed to uh, making it harder for her. Um, So at one point they talking about the internet reaction and how Reddit and Twitter was on fire with all of these theories and replaying the clip of her, the surveillance footage of her and her son going from her car to the pontoon boat, which really triggered something in me because this was the first time as somebody who consumed a lot of like true crime documentaries and podcasts and stuff really started seeing the brain worms come out with people. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I remember seeing people like like incessantly going in on the police department and the water services that were local to that lake and being like, you guys need to look at this place. And I found a screenshot and I zoomed it and here's this grainy pixelated ass dark shape somewhere (laughs) that it could be her. Why aren't you looking for her? Like just bombarding this police department and all their services with like whatever theories that they came up with from like, the other side of America and, you know, in the name of trying to help and like vigilante justice, right? Most people are very well-meaning. However, I've been noticing with increased intensity that there have been like a lot of these keyboard warriors and self-appointed journalists and people who call themselves amateur investigators. That is so, that's such like a slippery slope. Like I get on here and call myself an investigative journalist, but I'm bullshitting because I'm talking about like, you know, um, you know, whatever the fuck, you know, (laughs) like I, I'm, I'm joking. Right. But there are these people who genuinely are like, oh, I'm an amateur investigator as though that's like a, an official distinction that is worthy of respect or something. <laughs> it is very weird. And I'm saying this because I recently got blocked by somebody on TikTok and because I it just bothered me. And I, I tend to 
Don't look at my Twitter right now. That would be hypocritical. But usually I don't engage. Okay, I'm very Meredith Marks to the bullshit. But this time I just like couldn't help myself. Okay, so there's this woman who has been following the Idaho 4 case, the Moscow murder case for a while. Basically what she's doing, she is calling herself an amateur investigator. She's basically just like regurgitating what actual journalists who are doing the work to actually do this stuff. She's just regurgitating the findings that they had, right? Cool. People consume media and news and information in many ways. Like if that's how people get their information and that's like the best way to consume it, by all means, like do your thing. I've got a podcast. Who are me to judge in that regard, right? But there, she started, uh, she happened upon my TikTok. I didn't follow her. Something about her tone, I was like, mm, there's like a bloodlust here that I'm seeing that this woman is now like feeling her own self because of the attention that she's getting from being this quote unquote amateur investigator, right? And then not two days later, did she post a teaser for the merch that she was going to be dropping? With these victims' names on their hoodies, and so how I came to find come to find this out is that she happened again on my for you page, crying, crying, because people obviously had a negative reaction to that, and I'm just trying to do the right thing. And I had to go and contact the family and tell them that people were attacking me. And how embarrassing was that for me? Which tells me that you did not contact the family members in the first place to ask them if they would be okay with hoodies with their family members' names on them. Imagine you're just walking around trying to heal from something that is now a national headline every hour at this point. And you're walking around at Walmart just trying to, like, have a good moment, get some steps in, and you're seeing your beloved's um, name on somebody's hoodie. Why? And I would be fucking livid. And to think that this woman called the families and decided to complain about how the internet was attacking her and not about the fact that she was using... (laughs) And she claims, okay, in the interest of like the full story, she does say, I, um, you know, I was, I am a designer and I was doing this in good faith. And I was, this was my mission. This is my mission to set up uh, a foundation and then give the proceeds to the family. Okay. But when people asked her, how much of the proceeds are you going to give? She deleted the comments and blocked a lot of people. So that's to me is really sketchy. But the first issue that I have is that you did not tell this family in the first place. And they had already set up um, actual family members or family friend set up a uh, merch that was like respectful and symbolic and didn't have their names on it. And it was like a thing that had already been in motion, but you TikTok lady decided to just set up a foundation for people who you don't know 
don't have a relationship with, and didn't ask permission for. I would be the fuck livid. But you're crying because people reacted negatively to it. Like, this is the brain worms of things that happen. Like, people make this shit so much about themselves and not actually what happened and how they're going to be the hero in the story and not the tragedy that is going on and the fact that these people are trying to heal themselves. I'm so off the thing. But you know what I mean? Like, this is wild. Please, like, we have to find a way to be able to... It's perfectly fine to find a story, a tragedy, to be interesting in some regard. Like, I get that, and it's fine to talk about it and discuss it and to have opinions on it. But when you make it your whole, like, personality and you make an industry out of it, like... That's where you, and you're not respectful to the victims and it becomes more about you than them. Like, that's when we really have to, like, look at ourselves. But I'm I'm about to be done, okay? This was not about that. <laughs> okay, I'm, like, actually done. The series ends with people theorizing about whether or not there's a Glee curse. And it seems like some people fully believe in it, while others are like, you know, this is just kind of life. It's just what happens. Another woman really wraps it up by saying that a lot of the glee curse theories popularity is due to the fact that people just don't want to deal with the truth like they don't want to deal with the fact that Corey struggled with his uh substance abuse they don't want to deal with the fact of what mark did they don't want to deal with the fact of naya's son now not having a mother to raise him like and so it's just better to think and to rationalize that there's some sort of supernatural curse that's happening with the cast and crew rather than the reality of like this is just the tragedy of life you know which actually brings me to a theory of my own i'm just i've I've been working around it in my head and just let me know if you think if, if i'm picking up on something here okay so i feel like you know, obviously in the last few years, there have been a lot more conversation and discussion and transparency around mental health, right? We're talking about it more. People are going to therapy and, you know, it's just a different scenario than has been happening, like, you know, in my first beginning years, right? So I think because of that, there are just a lot of conspiracy theorists that pop up because... There are people who are just choosing not to see the reality and the truth that this world is fucked up and depraved at times and it's not great. And so I think that there is a rash of people who um, want to really step into their truth and seek out like ways to better themselves. And there are a lot of people who probably don't even realize that they're like, I can't handle reality. Like it's too much for me. And so I'd rather come up with these wackadoo theories as to why things happen, then come up with the truth. Like I've been noticing ever since like the vaccine happened, every time somebody dies, especially a notable person, they die young-ish or not. You could be fucking Betty White and somebody's being like, oh, was it the vaccine? She was 99 years old, you guys. She was 99, you know? Like sometimes people die. Like people act like nobody died before the vaccine. And now every time somebody dies, it's like, well... Did they get vaccinated recently? And it's like, well, sometimes people just die other ways. And it's sad and it's tragic and it's young and it sucks. But there are other reasons. There are like millions of other reasons why people might die that have nothing to do with the vaccine. Like, 
please get the worms out of your brain. Anyway, this was not a brain worms episode. This was about Glee and I'm now done ranting and raving <laughs> about the internet and conspiracy theories. But with that all said, you know, like I think this was like a, I would give the docuseries a B minus. <laughs> Still watchable, but walk, don't run. And like I said, definitely don't pay for this. Okay. Um, but thank you guys for uh, listening to this. Thank me for speaking. We'll be back next week. Something fun. I got cooked up. Uh, yeah.